Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you are watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. And today we are in our 10th in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. And what we're going to be doing today is looking at how glutathione transfers the burden of supplying reducing power from the antioxidant system to the system of energy metabolism, and in doing so, implies everything that supports the system of energy metabolism as equally important to the antioxidant system as everything in the antioxidant system. Shown on the screen is a mini diagram summarizing this principle. So 2GSH can be oxidized to form GSSG, and the system of energy metabolism is what recycles GSSG back to GSH. Where this happens is in an enzyme called glutathione reductase. And in the diagram on the screen, glutathione reductase is shown in blue, and it is abbreviated GR. Glutathione reductase requires two B vitamins for its function. First of all, riboflavin is connected to the nucleotide ADP in a larger structure called FAD. And FAD can carry two electrons and two hydrogen ions. When it's carrying them, it's called FADH2. We do the same thing for another energy carrier called NADPH. And here we have the B vitamin niacin that's connected to ribose and ADP and is phosphorylated. And that's NADP plus when it's loaded with two hydrogen ions and two electrons, it becomes NADPH, and one of those hydrogen ions is left over, being carried in solution alongside it, ready to react with it. Niacin is vitamin B3, riboflavin is vitamin B2. Now, NADPH is a diffusible energy carrier that is not connected to the glutathione reductase enzyme, whereas FAD is covalently bonded to glutathione reductase as what we call a prosthetic group. If you imagine that you have a prosthetic joint, that new hip is part of you, right? So FAD is the prosthetic group of the glutathione reductase enzyme and is part of the enzyme, never leaves. So we could say that the glutathione reductase enzyme represents the interface between the system of energy metabolism and the antioxidant system. Glutathione is properly part of the antioxidant system. NADPH is properly part of the system of energy metabolism. It's carrying energy from the system of energy metabolism, bringing it to the glutathione reductase enzyme. And FAD is standing at the interface, transferring that energy from NADPH to glutathione. So the way this happens is NADPH dumps off its reducing power, FAD picks it up, becomes FADH2. FADH2 drops it off into GSSG, splits that apart, reduces the sulfhydryl groups, and generates 2GSH. In order to understand how NADPH is deriving the energy from the system of energy metabolism, we need to talk about what NADPH is in a little bit more detail. Now, previously, we talked about how we can measure the reducing power of the glutathione pool 
based on its redox status measured in millivolts, and the more negative the number, the greater the reducing power. And we talked about how that was dependent on the concentrations of glutathione and GSSG and their ratio. We can apply that same principle of redox status to looking at these energy carriers such as NADPH, NADH, and FADH2. And the first way we can do that is to talk about their standard redox potential, which is a way of looking at the intrinsic reducing power of the molecule itself. And when we look at standard redox potentials, the assumptions are listed at the bottom of the screen, and they assume that we have equal concentrations of the reduced and oxidized form, technically one molar of each, and they assume particular temperature, pH, atmospheric pressure, and so on. We don't really care for the purposes of this lesson about any of that stuff, except to say that when we measure the standard redox potential, we're trying to look at the intrinsic reducing power of a molecule independent of its concentrations. So when we do that, we see that NADPH and NADP plus has a standard redox potential of negative 320 millivolts. NADH and NAD plus has the same exact standard redox potential, and the only difference between those two molecules is that NADPH or NADP plus has a phosphate group added to it. So to say that the intrinsic reducing power of each of these redox couples is identical is to say that this phosphate group has no effect on the intrinsic reducing power of the molecule. If we compare them to FAD, then FAD has a significantly less negative reducing power. It has negative 220 millivolts for its standard redox potential. So if FAD is less reducing, then it's not very surprising that in the glutathione reductase enzyme, the electrons flow from NADPH, the more reducing of the two, to FAD, the less reducing of the two, and then to glutathione, the even less reducing of the three. The significance of the phosphate on NADP is that it allows our bodies to regulate the pool of NADPH differently from the pool of NADH, and to use a totally different set of enzymes to metabolize each one of those. And so it allows a functional split between the two redox couples, and the NADP is typically maintained with, if we take the cytosol of hepatocytes as an example, liver cells, the NADP plus to NADPH ratio tends to be about 0.1. That means there's 10 times more NADPH than NADP+. By contrast, NAD plus to NADH ratio in the same compartment tends to be about 1,000. That means there's 1,000 times more NAD plus than NADH. That's a 10,000-fold difference between the two ratios, where NADPH is maintained primarily in the reduced form, and NAD plus is maintained primarily in the oxidized form. And what that does is allow a split in functional purposes where NADPH is used for reductive anabolic purposes, 
And NAD plus is used for oxidative catabolic purposes. That means when we're breaking things down, we're using NAD plus. When we're building things up, or where, when we're recycling things, we're using NADPH. Now, this is gonna be reflected in their actual redox status. What I cited before was the standard redox potential that assumed equal concentrations one molar of each. That's not the concentrations that we find in liver cells. And so just like we were talking before about how the cell can have different redox status for different pools of glutathione in different compartments and those can change over time based on the concentrations, the same thing is true of NADPH. Its true redox status is going to depend on its concentration at that moment and is going to be very reducing. NAD+, its true redox status is going to depend on its concentration at that moment and it's going to be very oxidizing. NADPH is primarily getting its reducing power from glucose through a shunt that is split off from glycolysis. Shown on the screen is a basic overview of what happens in glycolysis. We have 10 enzymatic reactions that split the glucose molecule in half and oxidize it to two molecules of pyruvate. Since those molecules of pyruvate are oxidized, What's doing the oxidizing is NAD+, the oxidizing agent, the agent that splits things apart, like glucose is getting split in half, and NADH is taking those hydrogen ions and electrons and carrying them to the electron transport chain to produce ATP. However, in glycolysis, we have the opportunity for a shunt. And this term shunt is taken from engineering, and if you have a circuit, where you leave the circuit and you come back to the circuit, that's a shunt. And so this can be called the pentose phosphate pathway because it's where we get pentose phosphates, or it can be called the hexose monophosphate shunt because we take hexose phosphates, make pentose phosphates, and then rearrange them and send them back to glycolysis. And when it operates in that uh, closed circuit, that's a shunt that leaves glycolysis and comes back to glycolysis. Whether you call it the hexose monophosphate shunt or the pentose phosphate pathway, it's the same thing. In this, which is summarized on the screen, we're taking hexose phosphates to make, this is six carbon sugar, to make a pentose phosphate, which is a five carbon sugar. In the process, we're removing one carbon dioxide and instead of oxidizing the molecule with NAD, we use NADP+. And in doing so, we make NADPH. And the two NADPH that are formed in the conversion of one hexose phosphate to a pentose phosphate is the major, overwhelmingly primary source of NADPH in the cell. Now, pentose phosphates serve a variety of purposes. Our demands for five carbon sugars include the ribose of uh, RNA, the deoxyribose of DNA. The five carbon sugars are also found in all these energy carriers that we were looking at before, like NAD and FAD, ATP, NADP, coenzyme A, which is a vitamin B5 derived molecule that's shuttling around um, two-carbon units and, and other molecules. So we're actually deriving two functions from this pathway. One is to get NADPH and one is to get pentoses. The reason it operates as a shunt is because 
What happens when you need NADPH, but you don't need any pentoses? NADPH is used not only for the recycling of glutathione, but also the recycling of folate and the recycling of vitamin K, and for the synthesis of all kinds of things. Nucleotides, cholesterol, fatty acids. So many processes rely on NADPH that our needs for it are higher than our needs for the pentoses. So what happens is when we don't need the pentoses, what we do is just send them back to glycolysis. Summarized on the screen, we can have six pentoses. If we arrange them into four hexoses and two trioses, we can send the hexoses back to glycolysis here. We can send the trioses back to glycolysis here. And all of those can undergo the subsequent metabolism to pyruvate, and we were able to gain NADPH out of that process. So if we need a lot of NADPH and we don't need a lot of pentoses, we just continually operate this in a shunt and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, producing NADPH every time we run the cycle. The regulation of this pathway is primarily dependent on our need for NADPH because when we use NADPH at a high rate, it get, gets converted to NADP+. NADP plus is a reactant in the conversion of hexose phosphates to pentose phosphates, and the rate of a chemical reaction is always directly proportional to the concentration of reactants. And so we have when we have more NADP plus, that alone is sufficient to drive this reaction forward at a greater rate and to make more NADPH whenever we need more NADPH. So to summarize what this means, glucose is the ultimate antioxidant because it is providing the reducing power that's used to recycle glutathione. Glucose donates reducing power to NADP+, itself becoming a pentose and converting NADP+, to NADPH. NADPH donates reducing power to FAD on the glutathione reductase enzyme. FAD becomes FADH2, and that enables the glutathione reductase enzyme to take GSSG and convert it to 2GSH. Then, GSH can continue to support all of its roles in the antioxidant defense system. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that more carbohydrate is better. And that's because when you have an excess of carbohydrate beyond your capacity to store it as glycogen, you convert the carbohydrate to fat, and the conversion of carbohydrate to fat, called de novo lipogenesis, consumes NADPH. What's shown on the screen is, uh, I love the title of this study, it's called Glycogen Storage Capacity and De Novo Lipogenesis During Massive Carbohydrate Overfeeding in Man. And what they did in this study was, they took people, they put them on a low carbohydrate diet and exposed them to a lot of high intensity exercise. That brought their glycogen stores uh, down as low as they could possibly go. And then they switched them to an 86% carbohydrate diet that was, it wasn't just high carbohydrate, it was hypercaloric, so well beyond their normal needs for calories, such that the total amount of carbohydrate in the diet exceeded their total needs for calories. And what you can see is that over the first couple of days, what happens is, first of all, they start burning all of their energy as carbohydrate. You can see they're burning 500 grams a day, 
500 grams a day of carbohydrate, that's like 2,000 calories. So they're deriving most of their energy from carbohydrate, and they're starting to put the excess in glycogen. You can see over the course of day three to day seven, glycogen storage capacity tops off, and after day seven, they're not storing anything else in glycogen because it's full. As glycogen starts to get maybe a third full or between a third and a half full, de novo lipogenesis starts happening and it starts increasing as the glycogen storage gets full. Once the glycogen storage gets full, de novo lipogenesis just takes over. So whatever they, whatever they can burn for energy, they burn for energy, all of the excess gets converted to fat. Now, the study that I showed on the screen is extreme. I can't think of many situations in real life where your total carbohydrate intake would exceed your total need for calories. I can think of maybe a food eating contest where you eat as many hot dogs as you can that have a lot of hot dog buns. And I can think of some tribal rituals of intentional fattening. But for the most part, when people are operating in a eucaloric diet or a slight caloric excess, De novo lipogenesis is a minor pathway. If you take people on a standard American diet, they're making one to two grams per day of fat from carbohydrate. That increases to three to six grams for females during certain parts of the menstrual cycle. And if you look at obese people or people with certain diseases, that you can maybe get up to three to six grams per day with those conditions as well. If you were to eat a very high carbohydrate diet, such as a 70% carbohydrate diet, and it's not hypercaloric, you can probably push de novo lipogenesis up to 10 grams per day. I don't know of any evidence that that in and of itself compromises antioxidant activity, but certainly you could say that if you're in the range where you're increasing de novo lipogenesis with increased carbohydrate intake, then it's unclear whether you're getting any net benefit to NADPH given the fact that you're consuming it in the process of de novo lipogenesis. In addition, the more carbohydrate you have, the more insulin you have. And when I say insulin, I mean the higher the ratio of insulin to glucagon. And when you ha have a high ratio of insulin to glucagon, you have high levels of intracellular insulin signaling that cause you to burn carbohydrate for energy. And you do that through glycolysis. So insulin is causing the downstream metabolism of glucose to pyruvate, which actually detracts from the glucose available for the NADPH production. If you restrict carbohydrate, you're gonna have lower insulin signaling, so you're gonna get less conversion of glucose to pyruvate, and that's gonna preserve hexose phosphates for the production of pentose phosphates and for the production of NADPH. Additionally, when you're restricting carbohydrate, you have other sources of glucose, and that's mainly amino acids, and most textbooks will only tell you about amino acids. Maybe 10% of your needs during this time are being met by fatty acids, but in the process of gluconeogenesis, you take amino acids or fatty acids and you make glucose. That glucose is now available for the pentose phosphate pathway. So glucose is the ultimate antioxidant, but there's probably a very wide range of carbohydrate intakes that would allow you to have enough glucose for the pentose phosphate pathway because when you restrict carbohydrate, even to the degree that we would call it a low carbohydrate diet, 
you have gluconeogenesis that allows you to get more glucose, and you have a decrement in insulin signaling, which preserves glucose for the pentose phosphate pathway. On the other end of the spectrum, when you provide more glucose, you have more dietary glucose available for the pentose phosphate pathway, but you're also increasing insulin, causing you to burn it for energy, and eventually you get to the point where you're increasing the conversion of carbohydrate to fat, which itself consumes NADPH. So what is the optimal amount of carbohydrate? I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect that there is none in the sense that there's probably an extraordinarily large range of carbohydrate intakes that can support the pentose phosphate pathway. And it's only at the extremes of either intake where you can start to develop a problem. However, insulin signaling itself plays an independent role in increasing glutathione synthesis as discussed before. So carbohydrate intake is going to be more important to antioxidant defense because it provides the signal of insulin to make glutathione. And variations of carbohydrate intakes across the spectrum of what most people are eating are probably going to be much less important as influencers of the glucose available for the pentose phosphate pathway. Nevertheless, we can look at things like niacin and riboflavin and see that they are making critical contributions to antioxidant status. In the next lesson, we'll also come back to look at how thiamine is another B vitamin that's important for supporting the pentose phosphate pathway and energy metabolism in general, and how even ATP production and everything that supports that is critical to the antioxidant defense system. All right, I hope you enjoyed this lesson. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you have been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn.